traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. This episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast is brought to you by Stock Market Hats. Stock market hats claim to be stylish and funny. Frankly, I wasn't that amused by some of them, but maybe you will be. And it's not just hats either, but they have t-shirts, sports bras, socks, and even pet ID tags. It's worth checking out, and right now you can take advantage of a 10% discount on all merchandise. Go to stockmarkethats.com and enter the code CONTRARIAN before you check out and take advantage of this special offer. There is a referral link I will put in the show notes as well. Stock Market Hats, claiming to be stylish and funny. All right, here with Dave Fishwick of MNG Investment Management. We are speaking live in person. The first in-person interview, by the way, I've done since COVID, so it's been more than a couple of years, everything else has been over Zoom. And I heard Dave speak here in Miami at the iConnections conference, and he raised a very interesting idea that caught my attention immediately for being contrarian, and I wanted to pin him down about this and ask him more about it. This idea is turkey. So let's start with this, Dave. Tell me what it is about turkey that you like, and um, yeah, let's, and then we'll take it from there. So in turkey, particularly over the kind of the latter stages of last year, but also during the course of the year, there's been something of a macroeconomic policy experiment, which is the reasonable convention is if you have an exchange rate crisis, a sovereign crisis, you raise interest rates to try and halt that and improve the situation. The Turkish Central Bank, uh, after several firings of the head by, by the president, um, adopted an, an alternative approach, which was actually to reduce interest rates into it. And this kind of led to the Turkish lira going into pretty much freefall uh, against a lot of currencies. Now, this has been kind of interesting over a number of years, but the context for us in looking for these types of ideas is there's a lot of conventional things you can do playing in major markets. Having some kind of informational edge or insight into that 
is, is pretty tricky. So we run a kind of macro portfolio looking for idiosyncratic ideas that aren't necessarily highly correlated with other positions we would have on in portfolios. Mm -hmm. So in Turkey, you're talking about an exchange rate that kind of nearly halves. There's an awful lot of understanding and knowledge about the problems that Turkey has, high inflation and a lack of credibility around policy making. At the same time, though, with an exchange rate that looks pretty attractive on a real exchange rate basis, you get paid somewhere between 30 and 40 percent per annum to own this thing. Mm. So the kind of the trade is essentially not necessarily saying we know better than the market does about inflation and definitely the Turkish lira is going to rise. But if it doesn't uh, go down an awful lot, you're going to do pretty well. And again, relative to the kind of the obsession with the Fed and mm. is the S&P overvalued and so on, mm. here's an idea that is independent. No question. This is about Turkey. Yeah, yeah and that's why I like it so much. So you say uh, expressing this idea, you mean buying the Turkish lira versus... Versus, USD, say, the euro. Yeah, or the euro. So you get paid, you know, the euro, obviously interest rates are zero, but you're getting paid when we put the trade on something like 35% per annum versus mm. the euro. Right. So again, over the course of last year, even with Turkish lira weakness relative to the euro, because you had that carry, actually you didn't lose that much on the trade. So often in foreign exchange markets, people forget about carry. That's right. That's right. Um, and in a world where most developed countries have zero interest rates, right. there isn't any carry. But something like Turkey, uh, you're getting paid an awful lot of cap carry per annum to take this sort of thing on. Interesting. And so the Turkish lira, has, it has been kind of in free fall. I don't even know what, what it is exactly. It's 13.65 against US. the dollar, yeah. yeah so it got to 18 something before they announced a change in policy, which was about protecting lira. Turkish lira deposit holders kind of guaranteeing them that they wouldn't lose money. Yeah, okay. Because one of the things they did, I mean, they, they cut interest rates, right? I mean, yeah. which was, which is, if you're trying to strengthen your currency, that's the exact opposite of what you <laughs> yeah. want to do, right? So, so yeah. the whole thing is, is kind of based around Islam and the view about what interest rates right. mean. And so you have got an alternative view here is it's going against the convention where te the tendency has been for emerging markets when their currencies are weak to raise interest rates sure. to try and make it more attractive. Effectively what they're saying is we want to let the Turkish lira do what the Turkish lira wants to do and we're going to set interest rates for the domestic agenda. Now that's kind of red rag to the foreign exchange markets bull and uh, so it's, it's, you know, it's a pretty frightening thing. I think importantly for us that kind of it's frightening piece is part of our an integral part of our investment yeah. approach yeah. which is we're looking for things that are a little scary because yeah. we think that kind of behaviorally emotionally investors demand to get overpaid in right. situations where they're frightening and i can tell you having had exposure to the thing as it was in freefall yeah. it is pretty frightening yeah so intuitively you kind of think yeah i'm attracted to that because i can understand why other people won't do it and i can understand why you get paid so much to take it on exactly no risk no reward what can you tell us about the geopolitical situation in, in turkey and, and how dangerous is that how explosive is that could that worsen and yeah yeah, these, these are kind of ever-present. And, and again, I wouldn't, you know, sitting in a London office or sitting here in Miami, claim I have some kind of informational sure. edge or insight relative to that. So well, I just tend to concentrate on what the exchange rate's done, 
the narrative about how risky and how dangerous it is, and that carry that I talk about, that starting valuation. So there are risks associated with Turkish politics, mm. all the geopolitics of Turkey's position in the world, and again, kind of the policy-making framework and the experimental nature of that. So I think those are obvious risks, but again, it kind of goes back to your investment philosophy. Mm-hmm. You know, if there are obvious risks that people have rehearsed and there's a narrative around them, it's not like you can get something from left field on this mm-hmm. necessarily. It's possible to be more bearish than, than the market is yeah. about these things, but it's not like it's a major, major surprise. Yeah, right. And so the major surprise would be if things remain tricky, but actually the exchange rate doesn't really go anywhere, in which case you're picking up 3% per month. Mm. Damn, that is a healthy carry. Yeah. Um, now, how about the Turkish economy? How's that, how's that been doing? So ironically, I think that's actually not doing too badly in a growth sense. Where it's got a problem is on the inflation side. Sure. So the inflation courtesy of imported uh, energy costs, but also obviously the exchange rate effect the current rate of inflation is looking like it's kind of in the 40s. So this is a problem for a longer-term buy-and-hold on the Turkish lira, which is the real effective exchange rate is is deteriorating the whole time because of that inflation differential. But at a time when, you know, U.S. inflation, European inflation is not zero anymore, um, those kind of higher rates of inflation which can come down and will naturally fall as we go through the course of this year due to base effects, whilst problematic, needn't necessarily be a major problem because the exchange rate, the nominal exchange rate, has fallen so far that even with that higher inflation, the real effective exchange rate is actually looking still pretty cheap wow. but it's not the sort of thing that oh, you want to sit there for three years holding sure, this if sure. the inflation doesn't become under control interesting i'm curious about other other securities um, associated with turkey i mean if you're you know the if you're talking about the currency the obvious other one would be the sovereign debt do you look at that um, yeah we've looked at it but i just in this case uh, it's pretty clear that the nature of the risk you're taking on is about the exchange rate. Got it, got it. So historically, we took on Turkish sovereign debt in 2007. So we've been running the strategy for uh, 20 odd years. In 2007, you had one of these exchange rate crises and the two-year bonds went on up to yield north of 20% or so. So we have exploited these situations in the past looking at the, at the debt, also via the equity market. Sure. So where you often have these exchange rate issues and then you raise interest rates, that hurts the PE multiple on the Turkish equity mm-hmm. market. So the banks and various other assets don't enjoy that rise in interest rates. This occasion has been difficult, different because, as you said, they, they cut rates. Yeah, yeah. So they actually the Turkish equity market's been faring reasonably well. So on this occasion, we're just electing directly to play the exchange rate as it is. But you can play these things in other circumstances via the, via the other asset classes as well. Sure. Obviously, you you introduce more degrees of freedom and more various factors that can impact the outcome. So this is a very direct trade just about the exchange rate. If you're introducing profits risk, economic risk via the equity market and the sovereign debt and inflation risk, then obviously it's it's a kind of slightly different element. You mentioned before the Turkish Central Bank coming off of this loosening um, thing, uh, where what what is the current discount rate or the, the, yeah, the so the in- interest rates are in the mid teens. Okay, so um, it's still hot, very. They're, high. they're high, but against an inflation rate, 
right. of 35, 40% plus, you know, you're sitting on what look like deeply negative real rates. Mm, yeah. But they're not alone there. So if you That's kind of true. think about the developed world, we have negative, relative to the measured rate of annual inflation today, we have deeply negative real interest rates. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the challenges intellectually, we would say, is why would you want to buy the Turkish lira when they're cutting rates in an environment in which the Fed's raising rates? And right. kind of Keteris Paribus, as in all other things being equal, that's an entirely valid point. Sure. The issue is what happened before has taken you to levels of valuation and extreme. That mean even if you're in a world in which emerging markets in general are pressured by rising US interest rates, uh, we still think that Turkey can do well. But mm-hmm. I can't emphasize enough, the main thesis is, here is that carry. It's, it. it's not a view that everything's going to be fine in Turkey. No, I get it. It's get just it. that you know your and, starting yeah. point is so good. And currencies being so liquid, you can get out of that trade at any time. Um, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The um, so so okay. So, but are they raising rates now? And, and uh, no. Oh. Okay. So what they've done is to stop reducing rates. Okay. So interesting when you kind of look at these currency crises, you see a gradual build-up of tension and pressure. Then they made the announcement about uh, removing the, the central bank governor. Oh, right. And then another central bank governor got removed as well. And then an ally of the president uh, and, and a sympathizer with this experimental strategy was made governor. So then they cut interest rates more than the market expected them to. But of now, what they've said is that they expect that the easing cycle may be over. Okay. Now, that still leaves you with, with negative rates, but clearly the exchange rate's behavior was causing some stress. So policy has been mildly adapted to reflect that kind of stress. Okay. Um, but it's, it, it is highly unconventional relative to the playbook that you see in other... So again, South Africa today raised rates. Right. Their exchange rate's been a bit weak. Inflation's misbehaving slightly, nothing like Turkey. Um, and so the, the playbook is being stuck to in, in large parts of the emerging world, sure. not, not in the case of Turkey. Uh-huh. But the central bank is aware of the issue and just doesn't really believe that the kind of classical view about inflation management via interest rates uh, is the right way to go, and we shall see. Yeah, I wonder if they if they are successful. If you see other, you're going to see other um, emerging market countries try the same route. Yeah, so you can go back all the way to the Asian crisis, actually. And, and I was working in Australia at the time, uh, and their model. And so when the Asian crisis hit, the Australian dollar was weak. And historically, the response to that would be to raise rates to try and defend it. But actually, they eased monetary policy into the Asian crisis, and the whole yield curve sat below that of the US, and the exchange rate took all of the heat. And the previous worry about that is that soft exchange rate, depreciating exchange rates, cause you a lasting inflation problem. But in this case, because the Asian crisis was a deflationary shock for Australia, you didn't end up with the inflation. So the, the challenge for the Turkish situation is that they're doing this against a backdrop in which you've got global supply constraints and measured inflation in a lot of places is not doing so this is, doesn't feel like a deflationary shock yeah. so it's going to be it's going to be a pretty testy path for them mm. so and again so this is one of those trades that are uncomfortable and you can see why yeah. other people don't want to do it no doubt. but that's where the, the pricing is that's the attraction of the trade yeah and challenge comes opportunity all right uh, Dave Fishwick thanks so much for joining us I want to take a quick break and come back and ask you some more questions about your background and how you ended up at your current state of your career. But let's first take a break. If you are a premium subscriber, you do not get the break. Don't touch the dial. And to become a premium subscriber, you can go to the website contrarianpod.substack.com and sign up. We'll be right back. 
We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our Discord server. They also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. That's contrarian.supercast.tech. This episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast brought to you by Stock Market Hats. Stock Market Hats claim to be stylish and funny. Some of them say things like, end the Fed, don't tax the rich, I heart the Fed, Dr. Parikh Patel, not back office. Okay, that one is actually kind of funny. Market cap cap, that's also pretty funny. And some other ones. You may know their Twitter, at Stock Market Hats. But check it out, stockmarkethats.com, and enter contrarian at checkout to take advantage of a 10% discount. Hi, welcome back, everybody. Here with Dave Fishwick of MNG Investment Management, uh, CIO of, of MNG, here in Miami, speaking live. And uh, Dave, you, uh, yeah, this is the segment of the show where we ask our guests a little more about themselves, how they got to this stage of their career. I know you've been at MNG you know, for a little while, so I haven't glanced at your LinkedIn. Uh, yeah, tell us about that. How, how you how you wound up here? So, so I joined um, the Prudential of the UK uh, insurance company, largest insurance company in the UK, back in the 1980s, directly from college, mm-hmm. where I had done an economics degree, and I was uh, I got a, a, a job at, at the Prudential in a group of people doing macro strategies, and was kind of asked to forecast European economies. Uh, and from that, the group used those interpretations of the outlook to think what that might mean for asset markets. So it was a relatively conventional uh, first job. It was, it, and instantaneously, I kind of thought, well, this is pretty daunting. My job is to be better at forecasting the German economy than the rest of the world's wow. conventional wisdom. Uh, and pretty quickly, it kind of dawned on me that this was this was really difficult to maintain any kind of systematic edge in. Uh-huh. So I'd actually then kind of developed uh, our own thinking around what really happens in markets and whether it is all about economics or whether other dynamics influence markets. And, and we kind of majored a lot on emotions and behavioral psychology. And I spent time down in our Australian office uh, and due to the time difference, had quite a lot of time to uh, to do some reading around the behavioral psychology stuff. And uh, mm. that interested me. Mm. And then um, I went back to the UK in the late 90s uh, and we implemented a macro strategy that emphasized the, the, the emotional dynamics of mm. markets and, um, and which you can use in a lot of ways. A lot of momentum strategies work on the basis of that. But we chose what was a kind of contrarian stand against bubble, stand against silly busts, in a sense, mm. um, type of strategy. Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. So this kind of begs the question what your views are then now, because um, you talk about the divorce between uh, markets and economics, 
Right now, we're in a situation here, certainly in the U.S., where we have healthy economic growth, the economy's in good shape, low unemployment, um, housing market is great, but the markets are kind of going a little nuts here, um, and it's all presumably all because of the Fed, the Fed raising rates, but. But there does seem to be, and you could argue that equities were overvalued. I know you're not necessarily an equities guy, but what is your view here on this on this disconnect that we're seeing? So, so the, the reality is that you know the heart of the, everything that we try to do uh, is a view about valuation in absolute terms and relative terms. And what I would say is that the impact of the Fed and other central banks around the world taking cash rates to zero is that it's allowed the valuation of everything else on the planet to look good in relative space. So it's a rationale that causes a re-rating of assets. So if you think about the S&P 500, it's done well from two forces. One is entirely sustainable and real, which is tremendous profits growth, which sets the US out apart from a lot of countries who have not had that profits growth. But what you've also had courtesy of the interest rate effects has been a fall in what investors would look at as the what rate of return do I need. So if interest rates were six, then a kind of 6% return on the equity isn't enough to, to get you interested. When interest rates are zero, you can look at that and go, well, I, I don't need as much return to justify buying the S&P as I used to. And so on the back of tremendously good profits company news and effectively kind of risk situation associated with interest rates that makes it assets attractive. You've seen the market re-rate yeah. as well as get great news. Now, what's happening now, uh, ironically for markets, is sometimes good economic news can be bad for your valuation, for your rating. So if the Fed funds rate were to rise two, 300 basis points, all of a sudden that comparison valuation of the equity market versus the cash has to adjust. Mm. So if I'm looking at the S&P today, I'm kind of thinking it looks dangerously priced. Mm. Not, not, not catastrophically, mm. the, the economic news is good, but ironically, a continuation of good economic news is likely to, re, to, re, to cause interest rates mm. to readjust. So if you're thinking about it in price earnings ratio space, the E gets good news, but the PE gets bad news. Yeah. So effectively, the yield on the market must rise to, to reflect the improved rate of return available on cash. Mm -hmm. And the same applies for the bonds. Mm. So the equities looked attractive relative to the bonds, but if the bonds have to reflect a higher interest rate regime, then that relative valuation argument no longer exists. Mm. So it's harder work. There, there, there are parallels to this. So I remember 1994 well, the Fed raised interest rates 3% during that calendar year. The S&P had 40% profits growth, but went nowhere. Mm. That's because effectively the valuation of the market had to adjust to those higher interest rates. Mm. And then after that, you're set up for higher returns, both on the cash and on the equity. Right. So you don't, you don't have to tell a bearish negative story right. about the, the US equity market to be a bit cautious about what might happen to it as the valuation has to adjust. Mm. And the end story is you're moving to an environment of prospectively higher returns, mm. but the market needs to, to weaken mm -hmm. to, to create that situation. Mm -hmm. What about if bonds become more attractive? Um, I mean, already the two years now, the one, I haven't looked today, but it was 1.2, I think. Yeah, and the fives are, up, fives are up to 165. So that, that kind of pressures yeah. the valuation on the S&P. All other things being equal, if you ignore profits for a minute, 
the way the price that you're going to put on those profits has to adjust to the fact that the bonds are competing and, yeah, exactly. and now offer a higher return. Yeah. So the ratio, the price-earnings ratio of the S&P has to adjust to that. The good news for America, for the U.S. in particular, which is less true in other other parts of the world, is that the EBIT, mm. i.e., what our company, our company's making money, is looking tremendous. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so, as a consequence, it's hard to be too bearish in a sustained way right. about about U.S. equities. The, but there is a valuation adjustment yeah. that needs to occur should the Fed funds rate go up. Yeah. Now, you, you can get bearish around if inflation turns out to be definitively not transitory right. and causes a problem and interest rates have to go up in a slightly more aggressive, chaotic right. way, right. in which case then you're talking about you need to slow the economy. Right. And so equity markets historically have a problem when the central bank, so the Fed, is raising rates, targeting slower growth to cool the inflation, and that kind of hurts the profits outlook. Right. And so there, both the valuation and your view of the economy take a hit, and it can get a little bit messy. And if you throw in all the kind of emotional psychology mm. stuff that I focus on, then you can see why you get some ugly scenes. Mm. Very interesting. Wow. Yeah, thanks for explaining that. Is there are there any other areas of the globe that you you you, you find interesting opportunities right now? Yeah. So so interestingly, you know, it's very interesting being here in Miami for me because understandably, investors, U.S. investors in particular, are kind of U.S. centric. That's entirely understandable. But right now, the the second economy, biggest economy in the world in China, um, they're cutting interest rates. Right. So can, in terms of is this a global phenomenon, it's actually a kind of Western developed world phenomenon mm-hmm. where interest rates have been cut to zero and need to rise. So the Chinese have been doing things to cool certain bubbles and regulate the tech side and the housing side. And so you've got a very significant economic block moving in the opposite direction, which is now you're kind of easing up a bit and trying to encourage more activity and um, parts of asia have also been hit and so on so there are bits of the kind of global perspective and other areas of the world that i think offer some interesting opportunities mm. and i'd throw emerging markets into that as well okay yeah but any particular emerging market other than turkey we already yeah have. some of the kind of commodity based areas so brazil's yeah. had a bad time yeah um and again it there are some places where there are legitimate economic concerns and it's right to view them as risky but you always have to kind of have a look at well how much am i getting paid right so the us is a great place but you don't get paid very much to invest in it elsewhere you get obvious and visible risks Mm -hmm. you can go and get paid well Mm -hmm. although if the chinese government is cutting rate Central Bank, the PBOC is cutting rates and the U.S. is raising, that would be an obvious trade there, long U.S. short RMB, right? Absolutely. You know, again, all other things being equal. The difficulty with this type of analysis is that the U.S. is so meaningful for the world economy that if the U.S. has a good time, that often is as good, if not better, for some other countries in the part of the world. So the Europeans will actually kind of be rejoicing about very strong U.S. demand growth mm-hmm. because it helps them out a lot. Of course. Um, and, and you've seen this in the past. I mentioned 1994. It is possible that as the U.S. tightens policy, but you've got very strong economic growth, that that helps out Europe sufficiently. In that environment, the dollar didn't go up. It actually went down because right. the, cause the, the growth benefit was felt yeah. so significantly in a shocking way over in Europe. And so uh, actually the dollar weakened into that environment. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting you mentioned 94, which I was 
a little young to be paying attention to these things at the time, but I remember 06 very well, 2006. Yeah. Another year where the, the Fed was tightening and another year where the economy was in very good shape, but the, the equities didn't do much. Yeah, and, but so, we know what happened after that, which was 07, 08, and 09, which was yeah. a complete disaster. Obviously, you have different housing markets and all that other leverage and stuff. Yeah. But um, is there no concern that, that the Fed does that? There are some similarities yeah. to worry about. So, you kind of, you know, um, the financial system associated with housing and leverage was, was as we found out, right. an issue courtesy of the Fed kind of going after some inflation. So, it's a good example of what I said about the kind of potentially messy things. So Ben Bernanke had taken over from Alan Greenspan and they were raising rates effectively at every meeting yeah. by 25 basis points. And then inflation kind of misbehaved a bit mm. and they kind of got into a difficult situation where their credibility is under attack if they were because they were looking for what they called a plateau. Mm. They're trying to find, well, we think we've adjusted rates enough. Let's see if we can stop here. And then the inflation data misbehaved and you had what I would call an episode where the S&P was weak, risk assets were weak, as Ben Bernanke was forced into raising rates slightly more than you might want to do. The end answer was actually, it was all kind of okay. Yeah. So there wasn't an ongoing inflation problem, yeah, right. but there was a leverage housing problem, yeah. which then revealed itself in 2007 into 2008. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you can see how that can, you know, it's a problem again. So if your monthly inflation data, if your monthly employment data is kind of too strong for comfort and questions of the speed at which the Fed's doing things, life can get chaotic. Yeah. Um, and you can see why the emotions can end up running high. So yeah. it's a very tricky game yeah. to pull it off and without without upsetting anything at all. Have they ever? <laughs> I don't think they ever have. You know, they talk about engineering soft landings yeah, and never surprising markets. Right. Well, to some extent, you have to kind of surprise markets. Yeah. You know, the economic system is permanently surprising. Yeah. So the Fed just has to do what the Fed needs to right, do. Right, and not worry about yeah, communicating. Yeah. Gosh, it's so interesting. Wow, what a crazy time. Cool. Dave Fishwick, thank you so much for joining the Contrary Investor podcast today on such short notice here in Miami. Um, in closing, maybe if you want to tell our listeners how they can find out more about you, more about the firm. Uh, I imagine you have a website. Yeah, so M&G has a website where we're based in the UK and run a very wide range of assets. We have about $400 billion under management, a range of different products. But yeah, we have a, a an episode blog, which you can see online oh, cool. as well. Um, where we're kind of discussing many of these things such as Turkey and what's going on in markets. So should things get interesting and you want to look us up, you can have a look at that episode blog. If you want to look at uh, uh, my colleague, Eric Lonergan, okay. he's, uh, he's he'd be tweeting and uh, is an author and writes lots of stuff about all of the stuff that I've been talking about. Nice. Very good. Awesome. Dave Fishwick, thank you again for joining us. Thank you all for listening. We look forward to speaking to you again next time. And that's it for today. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? 
the federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.